Hello and welcome to Radio, a podcast by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Ross Drakes, and we have our spiritual host with us, Rich Mulholland. He's just watching over us from wherever he is in the world. This podcast is produced by the Entrepreneurs Organization in South Africa. Um, and today I have with me Philip Hartman, who has both called himself unemployable, but he is also the owner of the factory and GSDH, which are, are companies that create digital assets in South Africa and then they sell them to the world. Welcome, Philip. Hey, Russ. Thank you. So um, our first question is always the same to everyone. Give us your elevator pitch. Okay, so as you said, I run two businesses. Um, I'm part of the Cape Town chapter in EO, and I run two businesses. One is called The Factory, and The Factory produces online banners um, for, cu- for customers who cannot deal with the sheer volume of production. And of course, the second emphasis on those online banners is conversion optimization. So that's called creative optimization. And the second business is called GSDH, and that was always, so to speak, the mother business. And GSDH is a full-service digital creative agency where um, we service customers, same as the factory, really, in Germany and Switzerland predominantly, but we work from South Africa, and uh, we conceptualize digital campaigns and obviously implement into various channels. Awesome. I mean, firstly, I'd just like to commend you for uh, having a term like creative optimization in your elevator pitch because it sounds really, really fancy um, and most people probably won't know what it is. So, so it's a really good thing yeah. to say to someone. Um, it's cost more. Cost more. <laughs> so so, so you're, you're German living in South Africa. Tell, tell me why are you doing almost the, the opposite of the, the trend where there's so many, so many people leaving South Africa to go and live in places like Europe? You've done it the, yeah. the other way around. The other way around, I mean, how can you not want to live in South Africa or in Cape Town especially? It's such a beautiful place. You know, what happened really with me was that we kind of fell on this on this business or this fact that you can render a service on a distance, um, which we've done ever since 2002. We started in the garage in Munich after studying in Sydney and, and um, Munich, both Stephen and myself, my business partner and myself. And then we came to Cape Town and we applied at some agency called Origin New Media at the time. They did amazing stuff, uh, channel design and 3D and that. They don't exist anymore. And they wanted to build a digital offering. So the boss's name was Rudy. He interviewed us both. I was 23, Stephen was 25. And basically he said, well, you know, I'm looking for um, a senior. You're both two juniors. You can share the position, half salary each. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, we did that. Yeah. Great idea. And the, but the point was that, you know, we had it in and suddenly we had a visa and we had, we had friends and, you know, we could go to an office and play. And kind of the people from the garage from the first year in Munich still called us, the clients. And back in the day, no one knew that you can actually render a service in a distance. I believe this is a great opportunity for South Africa because um, cost is really low comparatively in terms of a global perspective. You know, if you sell, if you can export services, which we do, we export digital services at South African cost base to Germany or England or Switzerland or any of those countries or the States, you really have great opportunity for margin, especially with the rent um, bombing out all the time. 
So really, you get more spending power in South Africa whenever the rand bombs out and you earn euros. And so basically what happened, you know, because you asked, we, we started there and then clients still asked us, can you do this work or that work, small stuff. And we were like, yeah, sure, we can do it, but, but we're not here, we're in Africa. And they were like, ah, it doesn't matter, as, soon as, as long as it goes online on time, please, please can you do the work? And we're like, wow, it's a business model. We can travel, uh, plus minus three hours was the idea at the time, two laptops, and we can just produce digital stuff. And as a customer base, we have a bunch of agencies in, in Germany and Switzerland. Because, you know, agencies always say yes. They hang up the phone and then they go, oh, shit, what did I just do? I <laughs> promised to the client that I can do this, but I can't. Yes. You know, you know the story. And then they call someone. And so we said, we are the someone. Just call us. We'll do the work. So at the time, we did a lot of flash, you know, and, and, and like many people, you know, we started, we left Origin and we started in the living room and suddenly there was too much work and then we had a designer and then we had a freelance network and then we had project managers and then it just happened. So to answer your question, really, I just fell on this business and then got stuck here. And, and because it's so beautiful, we stayed and we built the business here. I love that that term of you fell on the business and, and got stuck here. I wonder how many <laughs> how many people in, in EO and even, I mean, anyone who's just running their business, like how many people intentionally started their business setting out to do something and are still doing that you know uh, there, there all seem to be these like journeys that that happen and people end up in strange places that's true so i suppose i mean you, you know you're saying that it's easy for you but i know many of the the people i have conversations with like a lot of people are interested in taking their businesses you know off offshore and, and doing business offshore in in dollar and euro and pound based yeah. economies you know, how would you like what what advice would you give to someone or how would you because, you know, you've got this network and you obviously speak German. So, you know, you've got sort of like a soft in or at least a perceived soft in. Like perceived, what would you say? Yeah. What would you say to somebody who is interested in doing this? Like how would you? How would I mean, you tell them my experience it? here would be you have to go there and you have to travel. I just spent another three months in Munich and and then around Zurich and and everywhere in Germany really and just visited clients. I mean, the first four weeks, my goal was to meet fifty decision makers. I hit that after six weeks, and by the end of the three months, I was at something like ninety decision makers. No, just three months ago. So the last previous three months. And that's what you have to do. You can't expect someone to receive an email or and at least at least in my experience yes. talking in EO language, you can't send someone an email and go, hey, I want to sell you a website for 50,000 or 100,000 euros. Um, here's my phone number. Call me. It's just not how it works because people buy from people. So what, what I did the first five years was that I would travel to Germany um, for three months and visit agencies because at the time we just built agencies now we do obviously direct customers and big agencies but we do both and we also do more than germany we also do uk and, and, and us and that but we used to go 800 emails makes about per city makes about 50 meetings at that time uh, that would give us about one and a half jobs and that is about half a client that's stuck so that would become a repeat client so those were the numbers and I did this for five years and then after five years I moved, uh, I, I had a, actually had a, a flat in Munich. So I was in Munich more, so I would fly back and forth from Munich back to Cape Town and then eventually I was like, you know, screw this. The whole point was that I, I can have an agency in Cape Town, but now I have to be in Munich so that everybody can work in Cape Town. I'm coming back and either it's going to work or not. 
and of course it works but i mean by then we had a bit of a customer base and also some good pedigree you know we have good clients and big clients and yeah but the sales is always a problem we don't have this kind of retainer business where you work for very cheap but lots of hours we we are still comparatively cheap in terms of um, from American or especially German and Swiss perspective, but we don't go by price. So we learned very soon that if you want to try and be the cheapest, the client that you attract will always look for the cheapest. Yes. And the next job they'll be like, yeah, but you're not the cheapest. Yeah, I'm not the cheapest, but you want good work, you know. So do you want to? And so then it's the wrong client. So eventually you have to say, sure, we're competitive, but really we're selling German quality out of Cape Town and our line is always, and this is true, the combination of German precision or project management or, I don't know, we're on time and we actually follow up, kind of, that whole spiel yeah. with a mixture of, uh, or co- combined with South African creativity in the mother city somehow works because we are able to retain very big clients from a distance as a very small company. We're always between 10 and 20 people, you know, we're not 200 men strong. So, I think that's very, yeah, there's a yeah. few very interesting thoughts there. I mean, the one I love is that it's uh, this idea that being the cheapest is not necessarily a great competitive advantage. And we've we've had experience when we've sold into the UK on, on one or two occasions, our quotes were so low that the client actually wouldn't go with us because they couldn't believe you, you know, yes. when you're comparing like like 2,000 versus 50,000, you, you're like, well, obviously the 2,000 can't be in the same league. Yeah. You know, so, so you need to be within a certain range of, of your competitors, but, but you know, not, not too far away because that can also bite you. 100%. So we have this all the time. And in the beginning, I think we charged like, bro, I mean, we didn't do nothing. You know, we were like, okay, we, we now we're freelancing. What are we going to do? Okay, we're going to, write a fake request to three agencies that we're going to Google and they're going to quote us. I think one or two quoted us. So we sent some, some more requests. <laughs> we took those three quotes. Um, literally, we copy pasted whatever we thought was good. We took the average price per day of those three quotes. And that was our uh, daily rate for, I don't know, three years. <laughs> you know, I, we... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so it was ridiculously cheap. We charged like 300 euros a day or something. But it doesn't matter, you know, because we had a good in and we could, we were just like hungry and we were able to build a pedigree and, and a portfolio and to show like work that we've done. And, and But then, of course, you know, as you progress up the ladder and you get bigger clients, you cannot, you cannot always go by price. Firstly, you can't deliver the service, the quality of service that you're selling. And because you can't pay for it for, for such little money. And secondly, it's the wrong clients. And yes. thirdly, like you say correctly, the client will go, yeah, but they are so cheap. Guys, you know, we tried this offshoring story in India already. Okay, there's no time difference to Cape Town. Big advantage, by the way, again, for South Africa to yes. Europe. Um, this can't be right. Do take, take the next cheaper one. So if you look at um, daily rates in terms of agency business in Switzerland versus Germany, and then there's a difference between Munich and Berlin. Uh, Germany is probably 30% cheaper than Switzerland. So the Swiss people perceive Germany as a low-cost production <laughs> place, you know. And if you then go Nordics, which is very difficult to sell to, and we've never managed, but I would love to. You know, Stockholm is flipping expensive. 
So they go to Berlin to produce for. Because <laughs> uh, Berlin is cheap. Um, but also, yeah, Berlin is cheap. So I mean, just looping back around, I also love the idea that you know you, you said that you have to be there. Um, but I also like that you would send eight hundred emails. So so tell me a little bit more about how you would go about setting up all these meetings. Would you just cold email a million people and just set up meetings back to back to back? Yeah. So that's been a big journey. So in the beginning, 2002 or 2003, this was much easier. Now, obviously, that everybody understands that you can render a service in a distance. You know, you get a daily call from India. You can barely understand them and people are put off by this kind of sales. So you need to be more sophisticated. But in the beginning... Literally, we would we would copy paste manually the addresses from the websites of agencies, and we would send them a very polite email. Hi, my name's Philip. I'm looking for the art buying person or the person whoever is responsible for freelancers. Please, would you kindly reply um, and let me know who I can speak to? It's literally that short. And then about fifty percent uh, of those emails got a reply. So what we then did was we would say. Hi, I'm Philip. I've got your uh, I've got your email and your name from Petra, who said you are the right person to speak to. So I'm almost almost soft softly introduced, <laughs> right? So you, you create your own <laughs> soft introduction. Hundred <laughs> percent, and and that worked really well because Petra maybe looks is is really uh, good looking or very nice or very friendly in the company. So at least we got the we got the intro right. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so then we'd be like, yeah, we can do everything. We're very cheap and we can do digital. Okay, at the time, you know, we studied multimedia producers. So anything with two mediums would be multimedia. So 3D director. We used to produce 3D uh, uh, stuff on CD-ROMs yes. and things like that. DVD <laughs> offering. So DVD Yeah, so, so it was total, totally like everything digital was one drop kind of thing. Yeah. And, and then we would just say, can we please come and visit you? And will you give us an hour? And we would like to, to become a resource for you guys, you know, like a workbench when, when you have too much work. So this overflow kind of stuff. And a lot of people would say, wow, Cape Town. Sure, I love Cape Town or I've been to Cape Town or, you know, sure, come when you're here. And so you just collect these meetings and then you can do three to four meetings a day. So you start at 930 uh, you have the first one. If you click, you can do an hour, an hour and a half. Um, yeah, then it's 11. Then you can travel to the next meeting. You have a whole hour. By 12, you have the next meeting. It's 1 o'clock. At 1.30, if you uh, do it correctly on Google Maps, you can have lunch with the next person. And then you still have the whole afternoon. And in fact, you can even go for beers in the evening. So if, if you really wanted to, you can do four or five meetings a day. So yeah, 50 meetings would take about two weeks, two and a half weeks, and that's what I did. Jeez, that sounds. I mean, I I recommend. I mean, I, I'm I'm in awe of your hustle. That sounds brutal doing like fifty meetings back to back, day after day after day. You know, and, yeah. and, and supposedly you were still running the business. Who is who is making sure that everything back at home was still running while you were there just banging down doors? Stephen, my business partner today, still. So he's still in in uh, in charge of production. And remember, at the time, we used to produce ourselves. So yes. I would work, sell for three months, send work home to Cape Town, and then we produce stuff for nine months. Eventually, we run out of jobs, so we, you know, we you need to keep building the base. And then I go back to Germany for three months and decided for five years. And then, you know, after after a little while, you start having people, and then you start feeding the crocodile, which is always the biggest stress because you know, it's a cash flow issue. 
people want salaries and they don't care about projects flow. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So so now how have you, you know, like you're starting in, in multimedia doing Flash and Director. Now how's this thing evolved over time? You know, because those products don't mm. even exist anymore and people aren't asking for them or looking for them. What are yeah, we, we you had to constantly evolve. So, you know, at one stage we were labeling ourselves as a Flash agency and eventually we'd be like okay this you know this the whole then we had was we were html5 uh, specialist which is true you know you, we had to evolve the specialities but i mean you do that by hiring the right people and eventually you can't you can't keep up with all these developments and especially with these niches anymore and what we do now is that gcih is really a digital creative agency so we are able to conceptualize campaigns that are extremely powerful and and work really well through through the line in terms of digital. So full service digital. And then the implementation, obviously we have the base kind of skill sets in-house, so design, concept, front-end, back-end development and that. But like if you need special skills, we just hire on top in terms of um, of what the client requires. But also we've become much more selective. So in the past we used to grab everything and we'd be like, yeah, sure, we build you a big shop in this and portal. And then suddenly you, you're stuck with this big project and you get a lot of money, but the project also sits in, in production for a year and everybody's annoyed and it's a disaster. Yes. So we've started, and that's expensive because if you start turning down jobs, literally the opportunity cost is so great and it's very painful if you live off of the cash flow that you're making from projects. So we've started to become more selective in terms of the digital creative agency and then we built out the second offering, the factory, which is super, 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 super specialized. So literally we produce online banners um, as a niche in the factory, as a speciality. So, of course, that includes the whole production across the conversion funnel. So, top of the funnel in terms of where do we require traffic, um, display and all of that. And then through the funnel, landing pages and anything that really has to do with conversion. Because what happens traditionally in a digital agency, and that's how we got this whole idea on this insight, is that the agency will produce these banners opportunistically because they don't happen all the time. It happens sometimes. So when there's a big campaign, the client goes, oh, shit, we also need banners. Yeah, yeah sure, we produce the banners. But there's no process. There's no specialist. It just happens, you know, as an afterthought kind of, and then the junior produces these banners. But the issue with that is that, and then, you know, the client receives an email with 300 banners in a zip file and the Excel sheet that used to be the media plan is now the production plan. And it's pink, green, orange, and blue, depending on the, how finished the banners are. And the client is supposed to manually open these little files in the browser and go, yeah, signed off, oh, banner number 10, wrong headline. And he sends an email and he sends a screenshot with a little circle on paint, you know, Microsoft Paint. And that doesn't work. So the point with these banners is that it's really, so we've produced a different story. We've produced a software that, allows for a decent process through production. So you can log into the software and you can see your whole order, one to hundreds or thousands of banners, and you can give feedback inside the software and you can rewind the banners, pause the banners, scrubble the banners, which is extremely specialized. No agency would ever produce this because it's not their core business, right? Mm. So when you accumulate this business, suddenly there's a, a, a sort of a, yeah, scaling effect where it, it makes sense to produce software or own scripts that help with semi-automated production or quality assurance because it happens all the time, repeatedly, where versus if you do it once a year, you know, the intern can do it. 
the issue if the intern starts producing conversion elements is that the it's opportunity the cost of it's the intern it's but the, the problem intern. is that maybe maybe the intern is really good but the problem is the intern knows nothing about conversion and conversion optimization and the client spends millions of euros on media how is it possible that the digital poster i put in front of the client after spending millions for media and expensive targeting and and expensive creative services um, is done by the intern. It's not possible because the opportunity cost of saving 10 euros in the production of this one asset is exponentially greater if no one clicks my banner ever. So really it's absolutely ridiculous and it doesn't matter how much the production of the banner costs as long as it, the click rate is higher. So if we can increase click rate from 0.1% to 0.2%, in fact, from 0.01% to 0.02%, we've doubled turnover. Okay, so so it makes sense to specialize in that niche. Yes. So to answer your question, in order to keep up, and now of course we offer performance media with the factory, so we wanna, we own the whole conversion funnel. So we decouple creative and production work whenever production hits performance. And we group that with media and then we optimize performance for the client from a creative optimization as aspect as well as from a performance media aspect. And we marry that. And that's very powerful. I love that. So you sort of moved into a space where other people might not necessarily want to go because it's not super sexy or very exciting, um, but it's still a, a desperate need of clients. And, and not just a need, it's actually quite a a big need for them um, but it's almost 100%. overlooked in the yeah. in the market but now how do you you know i, I run a creative agency nice work and and creators are notoriously difficult human beings um how do you convince people to work on work that might not be perceived as as sexy or exciting or you know you're kind of saying come in and do all this work that would generally be given to the intern but you're going to do it yeah. 24 hours a day, yeah, seven days a week. Yeah, 100%. So these are different kinds of people. So, you know, in your agency, nice work. Uh, uh, um, um, the way to probably get good developers is to win awards because developers also want to meet hot chicks at <laughs> Lurie's. Mm. So that's cool. You know, they can talk about awards and... And creative people also want to win awards. In our in the factory, we don't want to win awards. We want to we want to work efficiently, and we want to do good productions that make really good results in terms of turnover for the client. The creative people can keep all their creative work, and then literally we decouple that. We do not compete with creative agency work from the factory. So we that's why we made a conscious decision to split the brands, the factory and GSTH. Um, because creative agencies will feel threatened if we start going, yeah, but we can also make concepts. Of course we can. We can make global campaigns, umbrella campaigns, but we don't want to do that with the factory. We just want to produce. Yeah. And so hence the people that we have in the factory are different types of people than in a creative agency. They are more people, like, um, you know, people that would work in a, in a factory that want to do a good job, but do want to go, go home on time and that have a decent process that they can work by and not work through the weekend for this pitch that no one pays for. And and in the end of the day, maybe you win an award. And that's, so it's a different type of people. I like that. 
Um, I, I want to take a like a hard detour here. I mean, I think one of the main reasons you're on this podcast is, you know, that that I know you're running these two companies, but but that wasn't enough for you. Could you could you just share with us a little bit about your journey into into fatherhood and and what what the results have been, um, you know, of, yeah. of that. Yeah, I love that topic. I mean, you're also a dad. I mean, we, we talked about it in Macau, and, and yes. hence I've followed you on Instagram. So, so yes, I'm I'm a passionate father of twins and triplets, and the whole thing came about within literally 13 months. So we went from zero kids to five in 13 months. We adopted twins, and then within uh, six months of having adopted the twins, my wife fell pregnant with triplets, and I realized that. Before this, we had a pregnancy that didn't work, which was hugely traumatic, and and I realized that there is no, there was nothing for dads. Now there's a little bit more. Two years later, there's a few podcasts, but really in relation to the inspirational and good content, quality content that's out there for mums, um, there's nothing for dads still. Sure, there's stuff for parents, um, you know, but specifically for dads, nothing. So what I did was, I started a project called Dedicated.com, and. Within this project, I'm running a podcast where I speak to interesting dads or unique dads and I ask them to share their experience, kind of like an ER of 5%. So I ask them to share their experience as dads um, and my aim is to empower other fathers in order to facilitate family success, simply because I couldn't find anything that would help me. It was extremely, extremely <laughs> difficult, you know, to go through <laughs> zero to, to five and then you know, suddenly I had the twins alone at home and my wife's in the hospital with triplets and I'm like, okay, they were like a year and a half, not not even, you know, what must I do? Trying not to go bankrupt with twins and then the triplets in hospital and then they went to NICU and it was difficult, you know, and so a little bit I'm doing it, of course, for my own gain because I'm meeting all these amazing, amazing dads, quite a few from, of them actually from um, from EO, funny enough, it's... I find EO people are good because they don't mind sharing because uh, I've learned from forum and 5% that, you know, they won't die if they say something valuable and, and actually become a little bit vulnerable, but also from other sources, so to speak. And yeah, it's amazing. The feedback, the feedback I'm getting is amazing, amazing. I just started publishing last week, as you know, I've worked on it for like maybe a year, a year and a half. Um, in the beginning, I of course, as you do, I tried uh, starting a TV series straight away from mm. nothing. <laughs> it took me a year to realize that you can't just start a TV series from nothing with five kids and two companies. And yeah, so I start now I'm starting with the podcast. And the vision is that with this reach, I still want to do the TV series, but I'm going to do it on the back of the reach from the podcast. I'm going to do a Kickstarter campaign, pay for the TV series. And then on the back of that reach, I would like to do a accelerator um maybe as a first stage and as a second stage a impact vehicle or impact fund vc fund or something like that that invests in the companies that carry the same mission empowering dads because i believe that if we can empower dads and facilitate family success literally we can make the world a better place because families are the smallest unit on how you can organize society Actually, EO should in, get involved in, in my accelerator. They've got this um, startup idea. What's it called? GSE? GSE? Yes, uh, GSEA. Are you yeah. a student? Yeah, you have to become a Call student. <laughs> oh, no, I don't want to. <laughs> but maybe we should do a... So I, oh, so by the way, 
I started a group, again, there's nothing for dads. I started a group, um, um, a MyEO group, Dads of EO. And suddenly that became, at one stage, it was the fastest growing MyEO group in EO because there's nothing for dads. I mean, how many dads are in EO? Come on. You know? Well, this is, I mean, so that what interests really well. me so much about this, there's a few things. The one is, you know, that it's, you, you found yourself in this outrageous need state. Um, you know, you went from zero kids to five five kids and, and you were suddenly in a, in a definite need state. And like all good entrepreneurs, you you wouldn't let a good crisis go to waste. So you, you're starting to build something <laughs> off the back of it. Um, yeah. But I think what's what interests me is how much you know. So so I have these conversations when you know I, tra- I travel to many EO events. I was actually at the member a Meta Leadership Summit uh, in Lebanon mm-hmm. last week, and you have these conversations. And there's so many of these these people in EO and these men in EO that are traveling and working. And they're trying to build these businesses, but they're also trying to be good fathers. And how do you balance the you know the questions? Are how do you balance these things? How can you be available at home all the time and still in your business? And fulfilling your dreams. So there are these these topics that people are trying to figure out, and they're trying to 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 get answers to it. And and I agree with you that there are very few places to find this kind of information. Yeah. So that's a very important topic. I mean, if you were now in Lebanon, you would have met uh, Warren Rustand. Yes. And and he was actually, in fact, the first dad that I interviewed on on uh, on the show, and. Yeah, he's got a very clear opinion on this. He will say, family first, you work from nine to six. And if you can't do your job from nine to six and you work over hours all the time and weekends and nights, then you have to do something different because you've got the wrong job. That's what he says. And he's got very clear. So he mentors me, um, which, by the way, an amazing, amazing stuff came out of this whole project, you know, because I'm meeting all these dads. And everybody goes, wow, you know, this is a, a true need. A lot of dads say this and, and people start offering their support. Um, another company, they're called Ministry. That's, it's a digital transformation agency um, or consultancy in Hamburg. They were like, ah, sure. Can we build your website for free? Can we support you here? Can we do so A lot of people started, uh, Richard, actually, Richard Mulholland helped me um, build my, my uh, first presentation deck a year ago or a year, half ago, uh, half ago. And he helped me as a sparing partner. You know, he's highly creative and, and, you know, he can think around a few corners and super interesting, you know. And So, anyways, I'm, I'm going on off a tangent here, but what <laughs> Warren does is that... <laughs> what Warren does is that he's got his four buckets. Do you know this? Have you talked about this in Lebanon or no? Uh, just, I mean, for everyone, let's, let's just remind everyone on the, on the show. Okay. So, so he's got, he's got um, family business, community, and self. And then he defines certain goals that he wants to achieve within these buckets. So they're overarching goals, big goals. For instance, um, in family, he's got one goal that he would like to uh, improve the relationship with his wife all the time. So he defines these goals. And then within these goals, or underneath these goals, he defines certain activities within the buckets. And then he schedules them. So he used to schedule on paper and he used to schedule um, in a paper calendar. He used to schedule family stuff, for instance, in red with a pen, ink, so you can't delete it. And he schedules the family stuff a year out. And then in pencil, he will schedule all the rest. And 
So by doing so, and I've, I've started doing that too, since he's, he started to work with me, I've started to schedule things and, and suddenly you start doing that. I mean, it's very easy to put it in the calendar and not doing it. You still have to do it. You know, we're all guilty of that. So like, you know, it's easy to put it in the calendar, but you actually have to execute on it. Yes. But once you start breaking it down from, these are really my high level goals that I really, really want to achieve clarity of vision kind of stuff and, 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 and with intent. So you understand the intention and you have clarity of vision where you want to go. And then you start scheduling these activities within these buckets underneath your goals. Suddenly stuff starts happening and it's, it's very powerful. I mean, for me, it was an amazing experience. And because you asked how people can balance family and business. And yeah, it's difficult for everybody. Mums, dads, of course, but I think this is the way intentionality and, and trying to stick to your own schedule, so to speak, if you if you if you choose that that route. I mean, I love that, and thank you for the reminder of this. You know, I was at the Global Leadership uh, Academy in Washington um, nearly two years ago, and you know, you forget a lot of this. Um, yeah. But I love that idea of intentionality, and I suppose you know, just for context around Warren, it's not like he hasn't achieved in his life either. So, so it's not like putting family first has made him a not successful human being. I mean, he's listed quite a few companies on the on the the Nasdaq and has been the CEO of many large corporations and has built and sold huge businesses and worked for. Gerald Ford when he was the president of the United States of America. So he's also achieved at a very high level, but has managed to do that whilst putting keeping his family in in check and not doing it at their expense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But more importantly, so what he will say is, um, any success or any achievement outside the home without success inside the home is worthless. So the things that you've just described are outside the home. And he's also achieved the fact that his whole family lives on his land or on their land. They don't have to. They're adults. You know, he's got seven children, 19 grandchildren. So that proves to me that the things he say about family are very true. Yes. Because they don't, they don't have to do that. So the things that he did or that he talks about or preaches, he doesn't actually preach. He just shares, uh, seem to work. He has a family vision and a family mission structure, and and that really works. This is amazing how a lot of this is uh, very EO-like in terms of the principles that's pulled out of EO, but just applied in a family setting and applied in a personal setting. Yeah. Now, what are some of the other amazing sort of realizations or, or interviews that you've done that, that took you by surprise going through this project? I'm dedicated. Yeah. Um. So the biggest thing that always comes up is, is spending time with intent. So it's almost not, a, not as important how much time you spend, but it's very important how you spend the time with your kids and your wife, by the way. And one very interesting uh, thing, a guy from, also a, a dad from EO from Canada, uh, Rich is his name, he said something very profound, which was the parent's relationship comes first. So people make the mistake of thinking that the kids' relationship suddenly is first when the kids come because they're cute and they're dependent and they need you and it's easy, you know. And, but it's not because if you don't have a decent relationship with your spouse, you know, there's no foundation for the kids. And that came up in a few with a few dads. For instance, Pierre de Villiers, who's an amazing, amazing South African. Uh, he's 
during apartheid time actually he already was quite advanced in terms of childbearing or child, child bringing up your kids you know he he would not send his children to boarding school but he did homeschooling 35 years ago and what he did was um he said he reduced the needs so literally until 10 years ago brood i lived in a in a in the deep south in in south africa in the, down the peninsula in, in, in cape town uh, in a hut without electricity because what they did was they just reduced costs so that he didn't have to work so much so that he could be with his kids and i think a lot of the time what we the mistake we make as dads and often if the dads are the providers i'm sure the same counts for mothers too but it's especially true for dads is that we think providing means having to pay for everything and hence we need to travel and that's a catch-22 so if you are able to reduce costs, it will come with more time for your kids, maybe, if you choose to spend that time with your kids. And on the other side of things, the opportunity cost of having to travel and to make more money so that you can, in adverted commas, provide better is exponentially greater because you're away from the family. That was one insight. Um, another insight uh, was which I really, really love. That's on the first episode that I published last week with Richard Walton from Cape Town, also Cape Town chapter, to apologize to, to your children and apologize often and explain why you were wrong and why you did this. Because what you do by apologizing is that you level the playing field and suddenly the child can open up again and you have out of that come very powerful and meaningful conversations. That was really good. Yeah, it's. I think people should listen. It's on dedicated.com. And <laughs> we'll we'll link everything. Way. We'll link everything in the show notes. Um, I mean, okay. I love this, and it, it just shows how desperate uh, dads are for content. I mean, uh, there was the yeah. uh, Ignite event was in Joburg um, a few weeks ago, and Grant Gavin shared a very personal story, which I'm, I'm not going to share on his behalf. But the lesson out of that was, you know, so often you're very busy. And you're supposed to do something for your family or for your children. And it, it doesn't happen because whatever, there's meetings and there's cash flow issues and someone's trying to sue you and, 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 so you don't do it. Um, and the thing he shared was that somebody said to him, I want you to go home and I want you to look your family in the eye and say, I didn't prioritize you today. And he was like, as yeah. soon as he heard that, literally the next day he did the, you know, he did all the things that he was supposed to do, you know, that he'd committed to doing for his family, just because it is that, just that switch in your mind of, of, you know, I didn't prioritize you today. And that's essentially what your behavior can say to, to your, your partners and your, your children that I didn't do this because I didn't prioritize you. I didn't make you a priority. I made my company a priority and I made cash a priority and I made all these other things priorities, but you didn't get it onto that list. It's a, for me, that's one of those thoughts that's that stuck to me, and I'll probably never, never let go. Yeah, that's very, very, very powerful, and it's it's true. You know, and kids don't care if if I, I read a book called um, "If I Can Change, You Can" or something like that. And the guy, it's about transformation, and the he, he there's one story where some dad puts off the soccer playing soccer with his child forever and ever and he goes yeah but i'm not good i can't play soccer and eventually the kid says i don't care that as long as i just want to play soccer i just want to spend the time with you yeah 
And then he starts a whole different relationship with this kid just because they're kicking the ball. And it doesn't matter how good he plays. So he's a different perspective on playing soccer than his son has. And like you say, you know, it's have you done this? Yeah, it's on my list. It's just a rude way of saying I'm I'm not prioritizing this thing. Yes. Yeah. Sure. So you've given me a lot to think about and lots of a lot of reminders. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> hey, by the way, I'm here. I'm not the Mr. P- P- Perfection. Yeah, I'm just sharing what other people are saying. <laughs> yes, but isn't this a beautiful yeah. thing? I mean, uh, you know, to to share something else, you know, of of Warren's around, you know, you you set after things with intention, and and the idea is that nobody's ever going to do everything that they set out to do. So there's also a level of forgiveness, you know, when you find yourself off path or off of peace you you forgive yourself and then you reset your intention and you try again you know because i think there's also a lot of time that people spend kind of beating themselves up and wallowing guilt and self-pity and all these sort of things as opposed to just being like cool i'm not in the place that i want to be and i'm going to change that and i'm going to head in the right direction from this moment on which is quite a liberating thought for me yeah you have to give yourself some slack i mean again if you look at children and how they learn you know, look at it, how a child learns to walk. A child doesn't get upset because it falls. It just giggles and tries again and again and again. And if you get upset because, you you know, maybe it doesn't work the first time, I think that's a very wrong approach. So you can learn a lot from kids in that sense. Yes. And I think kids are often superior to adults, for instance, when it comes to learning. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, we watched a, a, a documentary on, on the human brain And we learn more in our first three years of being alive than we ever do for the rest of our time on earth. We assimilate more information in those first three years than we do for the rest of our life. Even if you go and get 20 PhDs, they're still not coming even close. They're just figuring out how to use your hands, how to stand, how to walk, how to eat, how to chew, how to look, how to hear. You know, like just, I mean, the amount of information that these little children assimilate and the speed at which they do so is just phenomenal and i suppose for me it's it's hard sometimes hard to realize because you know sebastian is is just walking now so i'm sort of at the i'm living with a drunken sailor you know so he comes sort of (laughs) staggering around the corner generally dragging something that he probably shouldn't have um you know and and sort of screams at you and then throws something across the room so that's that's the phase of fatherhood that (laughs) i'm in but it is also quite cool living with a, a drunken sailor yeah yeah it is it is, and you've got the beard to prove it. So that's <laughs> true. <laughs> so now tell me, Philip, where where are you taking this thing? Where where are you going with with the whole um, you know kind of dedicated? What's what's the vision? Yeah, so so like I said, I would like to have an impact fund ultimately, where we literally invest in companies that share the mission of empowering dads, because I believe that you know I can record a bit of content and some video and and some sound and that and. But really, the big impact we can have through entrepreneurship, you know, as all of us know, you make a decision and it directly translates into society um, through your company. And on a bigger scale, that would be through a bigger company. And and I do believe that we have a responsibility towards the planet and first and foremost to our children, whom we've borrowed the planet from. So if if you like, I would like to give leave the toilet uh, in a better state than I found it uh, when I entered it. And so I think that through dads, we can have 
also through mums, but I mean, I'm talking to dads. So through dads, I believe that maybe we have a different um, level of access or dads might be more receptive to certain messages that I find important. So the next season will be uh, around sustainability. So the first season is called Being Dad, dedicated on being dad. And it's just really on, on being dad because that was my first like, oh, wow, I'm a dad. <laughs> what What's next? Yeah. <laughs> Can someone t tell me what to do? But now, I mean, that's always going to be interesting. But I think that being a sustainable dad or talking around sustainability is is very important for dads. Um, and I think there's very important and interesting men out there that I can ask about these things. So, for instance, uh, two weeks ago, I had uh, Jamie Mitchell on the show. He's a 10 times um, paddle world champion. He lives in Hawaii. He's Australian and he's a professional big wave surfer and he just paddled 170 miles across the Channel Islands, which is like inhumane feature and he did it to make awareness or create awareness for the oceans because he has two daughters and he was like you know one day they're going to look me in the eye and they're going to ask me what did you do did you do something when this when this whole you know when people understood that coral reefs and whole ecosystems are dying like in the last three years um the great barrier reef pretty much half of it bleached in these great bleaching events there's a amazing amazing documentary called um chasing coral about this Actually, um, Mr. Vernon is also going to be on my on my show. He's this he's this um, Australian uh, ocean biologist or oceanographer that basically catalogued all the corals, and he's got children. So so they're very interesting dads that that have a lot of knowledge, and that can speak around these topics. And I I think there's nothing more important than talking about this because you know I, always, I don't like this about EO. It's always about growth and growth and can we grow more and you can't grow in, a, in you can't grow in a finite world forever so stuff needs to go in waves and it needs to go grow and then get smaller again because you can't grow forever because we, we it's, it's finite and we need to be more aware of the impact that we're having with our businesses and it's not just making more money it's a lot of having an impact on society having an impact on families having an impact on our environment. So if you look at Patagonia, they used to be, they used to have this mission of being around in a thousand years time still, because that means that um, the earth, the earth is still around and the customers are still around. So they need to behave in a certain way. So they would repurpose materials, plastic materials, and they would go and try and get cotton farming, which is extremely toxic or cotton industry more um, organic. And what they do now is they're saying our mission is, we are in the business of saving our planet. So they've one upped it. So I would like to speak to um, uh, Cunyard, Yvonne Cunyard, the founder, for instance. He's an interesting dad. Yes. So yeah, I think that's where I'd like to take it, have a social impact um, either through or both through this content and giving these people a platform and of course through being able to invest in companies that carry this mission of, of empowering dads with the right um, value sets. Well, Philip, I mean, I think that's a, a lovely note to end the podcast on. Um, thank you very much. I, I appreciate your your passion and tenacity and how you've been just going at it and, and never 
never settling. So, so I really appreciate that and also given me a lot to reflect on about sort of how I'm approaching my family and my fatherhood. So, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Ross. Thank you for having me. It's super fun. So you've been listening to Radio, which is a podcast produced by the Entrepreneurs Organization in South Africa. If you know an entrepreneur or a dad who might benefit from listening to this episode, um, I, I believe one of the greatest things you can do is sharing knowledge with somebody else. Please, please pass it on. And uh, we welcome any feedback or, or anything. Um, we always like to get better. Um, quick shout out to the sponsors of EO, Labanet and Bitvest Car Hire. If you guys were fathers, you would be amazing fathers and you would be very loving and very intentional about the love and care that you give to people. So thank you for that. Um, and yeah, I think with that, we'll catch you in the next two weeks. So thank you for coming on, Philip. And we'll see you next time. Yeah. <laughs>